Welcome to the Impactful Leadership Show. I'm your host, Greg McDonough. John Lennon once said, a dream you dream alone is only a dream. A dream you dream together is reality. Join me as we connect dreams to reality by chatting with innovators from around Washington, DC. Our show is proudly sponsored by the DC chapter of the Entrepreneurs Organization. This is the Impactful Leadership Show. Well, welcome to the Impactful Leadership Show. I'm your host, Greg McDonough. I'm the CEO and founder of Blackburn Capital Advisors. Today's guest is internationally recognized entrepreneur, investor, and advisor. He builds and grows companies and helps others do the same. He is the co-founder and advisor for Ironclad Accounting and Finance and the co-founder and partner of Model B. Please welcome Ashton Moore. Yay, applause. Thank you so much, Greg. Um, happy to be here today. Excited to dive in. Yeah, it's great. I appreciate you being here. And I'm as I was just thinking, uh, your intro is much more humble than your true background, but our guests can read these cliff notes and, and dig into you more once they understand who you are in a few more minutes. But anyways, um, you know, this show is about leadership. And my favorite question to ask my podcast guests is, Ashton, tell me about some misconceptions in leadership. Well, I think, um, you know, the great part about talking to me, Greg, is that I've kind of messed everything up at least. Well, actually not everything yet. I'm still, still trying to drive a few more things into the ground. But, um, you know, when we talk about misconceptions and leadership today, it's going to be things that I've done wrong. So how about that? Awesome. <laughs> um, you know, I'd say one of the ones, and I've seen this in marketing as well, because, you know, I'm usually on the growth marketing side of things, whether I'm advising companies or building companies. Um, I think that there's a misconception about um, faking it until you make it uh, versus truly being authentic. Um, you know, one one idea of that, like personally, is that we don't often, you know, share our struggles and we just pretend we're okay all the time, which isn't healthy uh, for our heads, but also for your company as well like headcount doesn't equals value. Um, so like my very first company, I was 21. I got some clients and I just went and hired as many people as I could as quickly as I could because I felt like I needed a big headcount to be able to, you know, sign even bigger clients. Um, but in reality, if I were just a little more direct about, you know, where we were serving the clients we were, like, I feel like we would have had even more traction as opposed to trying to pretend we were some like big giant with lots of employees. Um, you know, one other, uh, you know, kind of note though, is that, uh, there might be too authentic, um, you know, that viral post of the hyper social CEO about crying when he fired some employees. I think maybe that was a little bit too much. <laughs> maybe don't go that far. You know, as Ashton, you, you, bring up memories. My previous business, I was in a very similar situation in which I just refused to sort of share the reality of where the company was. Like I just thought that time would fix the problems that we had inside. And to your point, I wasn't being as authentic to my team as I thought I should be. Um, but part of me was trying to do that out of protection. You know, so I'd love to hear some examples when you shifted from being a less authentic leader to a more authentic leader and some of the impact that's had on your team. Well, I think I think you actually just hit a great one, which is kind of, um, you know, being frank about the reality of things. Um, 
Because if you're frank about, you know, just for example, you know, simple things like, you know, we want to, you know, try to keep expenses down this month so that we can, and then, you know, you think about the things that, that doing that will help a company with, like, so we can invest more in marketing, so like, so that we can, you know, have a bigger bonus pool at the end of the year, um, you know, just really, I mean, obviously, again, I don't think we need to tweet about us crying when we have to face hard decisions. But I, I think just a habit of being, you know, as transparent as is reasonable and most scenarios um, will not only allow us to make better decisions, but they'll help us to be honest with ourselves as the leaders of these companies, like so that we actually, you know, unilaterally start making better decisions because we're not, you know, all pomp and circumstance. And, you know, I think those those decisions are really the difference. If you look at compound growth, the difference between companies that can step up month over month over month over month and companies that kind of get stuck in the mud. That's a very well said. It's a great point. So going back to your example, you, know, you said you're running a business at 21 and, and growing quickly and hiring personnel because you wanted an empire. I, I put those words in your mouth, but hopefully that's okay. No, that's right. Uh, that's correct. When did you, when did the, that light bulb, that authenticity light bulb turn on for you? Was there an event in your life or a, you know, a webinar or you just, you know, tripped over a rock and hit your head and then, you knew? Well, un, you know, unfortunately it was much longer than that, than going all the way through that first company. I mean, I, I always assumed like, just for example, that if you can sell fast enough, you don't have to worry about the financial state of affairs. It's sort of been, that was kind of my first decade as an entrepreneur. I was like, I'll just move fast enough. And, you know, as a result of it, um, you know, Greg Crabtree says, keep three months of reserves in your bank account at all times and so weather a storm. Um, I think I really started to understand it when I partnered with my, uh, you know, my co-founder and CFO. Dan Bender, like in our first years of building the ad agency Model B that we built together, he would every quarter, six months, every year, he'd come up, up, come into the boardroom with these big, bold statements that were, you know, I'll give you a very simple example. Like, hey, if we don't, you know, cut costs, um, you know, today, like we're going to see a cliff in six months. And I'd be like, wow, like you're looking six months out in the financials. That's crazy. And then it would be other things like, hey, if we don't increase like our average contract value by 30% or our minimum like retainer that we'll work for a client for, be like, we're never going to have enough additional capital to grow without selling a piece of the company or taking on more debt. And like just being honest with yourself, like by looking off into the future and seeing what you'll be able to do if the numbers stay the same, allow you to make decisions today that really help you to change the course of your company to steer it to where you want to get. Uh, you know, today I would say I was dead wrong. Like you can never sell fast enough to um, beat poor financial management and like being authentic in the numbers. You just can't because the reason why is um, if you have another competitor who can sell as well as you can, who's better at like, you know, being upfront with themselves about the financial future they're just going to have more money to invest in marketing than we will because they're not burning money on tech they don't need or like inefficient processes or like all the different things that can kind of gum up the wheels of a well-run company. 
Certainly. And I love what you said there. And as you know, you're talking in my wheelhouse. This is what I do every day. I love it. Um, talk to us about how having proper financial management applications, tools, timely information has helped you take advantage of an opportunity when it came up. Oh, well, my goodness. I mean, the easiest thing is this. I mean, we we did our usual like end of year financials and we all looked at each other and we said, hey, if we make one, two, three decision, um, you know, and we cut cost here and we get leaner here, we could actually invest in real marketing for ourselves for the first time like this year. And, you know, all my friends are making fun of me for it, but they're like, wait, you didn't advertise for yourselves. That's what you do for all your clients. Like, well, we didn't have the budget. Like we, we weren't like, so, and we decided this year to heavily invest in marketing and, you know, we're now driving leads and closing contracts based on our special sauce, but we only had the money to do that without, again, selling a piece of the company or, you know, going into crippling debt, which has its own, its own uh, fun ways uh, of harming a company. But we could do that because of, you know, proper, like right-sized financial management. Um, by just looking at kind of who we are, looking at ourselves in the mirror and saying, you know, we're a 25-person professional services company. Like, we don't need, you know, this perk and that thing because none of them actually matter to, for the long-term of the company. What matters is we, 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 gather as much gunpowder as we can and we really start advertising ourselves so that we can achieve steady growth. And, you know, the outcome of that is we've been able to invest enough money into advertising to actually get the metrics we need to forecast growth over the next three to five years based on the investment that we put into it. But, you know, if we were running this company, like we did my first one, which is like sell to cover bad management, like sell more, sell more, like don't save, like spend, like, like, I mean, we, we never would have gotten to the place we are today, which is, you know, successful marketing tactics. So, you know, on the other side of it, Greg, I, I now know what you do. And, and obviously I'm a lot smarter about P&Ls these days. I, I now know what you do goes hand in hand with what I do, because if you don't manage your financials well, you'll never be able to invest in your growth. You won't have the money because it'll be bleeding out on tech subscriptions you don't need and you know, you know, checklists you don't need and all the stuff in your company that's actually just distracting you and burning cash instead of you putting cash like where it should go, which is in the growth of your company or into the pockets of the of the investors and stakeholders, um, you know, wherever you want to put it. You know, one of the questions that I get a lot around this topic is how much should I invest in marketing or advertising or promotion? Walk us through that. Like, how do you answer that question on behalf of yourself with what you're going through now or a client? Um, as much as you can. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> so, so the SBA, it's a great question. Um, the SBA gives us the average um, that you're you know, your standard mid-market company in the U.S. is investing 8 to 12% of their gross revenue, not their net. So if you are grossing a mill and revenue that comes out to, you know, 80 to 120,000 a year, obviously, if you're grossing 10 mil a year at a zero to that, 800,000 to $1.2 million a year. Um, I would say most companies, uh, or at least most companies that I meet, I don't know if it's just the crowds I hang out with, 
um, are either investing way less or way more. Um, so when you're way less, what happens is you're dependent on um, referrals, uh, your network. Um, you're dependent on how many events you can go to, uh, conferences or otherwise, um, because you haven't figured out like the huge, the, the magic bullet, the magic marketing bullet that allows you to steadily scale. Like you have to mess up like in all things in marketing the wrong ways before you figure out what the right ways are. Um, so eight to 12%, I'd say is where you should strive to be if you just want to be at average. But a lot of SaaS companies, like high growth companies, will trend more towards the 30 plus percent mark. Um, but, you know, easy audit, like, you know, do a quick analysis. How many marketing team members do you have? Um, you know, what are the roles? How many outside agencies do you have? Like how much you paying them? Like add up all the headcount, add up all your external marketing efforts, your marketing uh, tech, like HubSpot. And then compare that to your gross revenue and see where you land. And if you're if you're sub sub eight percent, um, I'd recommend that you you know look for folks that um, that can start helping you out. Um, there are lots of freelancers, fractional CMOS. If you're on the smaller side, if you're on the larger side, you know that ten million mark. That's when it's a really good idea to start looking at agencies like outside agencies for for anything for your advertising for your outbound uh for your content for your seo for whatever it is but um you know most founders get super frustrated with the fact that they have to invest money that doesn't get them an roi to understand where to invest money that does have an roi but the nice part is once you find it you can actually then sit down and forecast how fast you want to grow but it's very rarely like first try and new marketing tactic. It's like first try, then you iterate, then you iterate, then you iterate. And then six months later, you might have something that's working for you, or you know, you may have picked the three tactics that don't work for you in your industry. Um, so another great way to do it, by the way, that, that quick hacker shortcut, just call your buddies who run companies like yours and ask them what they're doing. And they'll probably tell you. That's a great, a great hack. You know, diving a little bit deeper into that, Ashton, you, you talked about audit and reviewing your spend and reviewing, like really getting a full understanding of the effort you're putting into your marketing program. Talk to us about the frequency and or, and or the discipline needed. Because I've, I've seen many, many companies that sign up for a marketing plan. It hits their credit card every month. And then it just, they kind of forget about it. And next thing you know, that they spent money that they don't really have an ROI measured on that money. So talk to us about the discipline around going back and reviewing your spends and the outcomes and how that, how that comes together. Yeah, there are two things you want to think about. Like, so when you're investing into marketing, the first most simple equation in the world is that you are attempting to find what action that you can pay for and repeat that brings you a dollar uh, or preferably three. You know, you want to see a minimum of three times your dollar investment from marketing into uh, your ROI. Um, and, you know, an easy way to think of that is usually at three times, like if you spend a dollar and you make three dollars, you're probably going to be break even because your average cost of goods sold is probably in the 33% range. So once you tip to four or five dollars uh, on your ROI, 
um, that's when you start to actually see steady profit and your marketing. And if you can, you know, find like if you can tune and tweak and iterate on that strategy where you start seeing seven plus dollars, I mean, it's it's a beautiful thing. Um, but so, you know, if you think in your head, okay, um, I'm going to figure out how much I spend uh, before I make a dollar back. Um, I would say the easiest way to um, do that, actually, Greg, I'll speak your language here, is just, you know, assess your uh, your risk profile and then assess, assess the length of time in which you need a return before you... Um, before you personally cancel the program. Like I recommend that you test any tactic, no matter what it is for at least 90 days. Um, now that said, like if you have, and we're just going to use like easy, easy math here. So let's say you're a $10 million company. So you have a $1.2 million uh, marketing spend. Like what you want to do um, in terms of experimental versus fundamental is assess how much of that money you're willing to lose to find new tactics. Um, so maybe that's uh, maybe you talk to four or five um, you know companies who are similar to you, and they all say that there's one strategy that are that are tactic that always works for them. And you know, in your mind, you're not willing to experiment with more than half of your investment into marketing. Put fifty percent into the thing that's going to work, and then put ten percent. You know, put the other fifty percent into more experimental things. Like you know, it could be influencer marketing, it could be podcast marketing, it could be you know whatever they didn't mention. Because you may be able to find something that actually works even better, but you still want to put your fifty percent into something you're fairly sure will work. Um, you know, for a lot of companies, um, conferences and in-person events are a really, you know, wildly beneficial way. Uh, referral programs, you know, maybe you take some of your marketing budget and you send all your clients like a great gift and an ask, you know, to refer you to somebody that's similar to them because they know you do great work for them. You know, those sort of those basics that you know that logically are almost always going to work. And then put the other stuff into things that you're okay with potentially losing, but potentially finding that it does drive a return once you iterate seven or eight times. And, you know, I would say, I'll give you a very easy example of that in real life. Um, it generally takes us, uh, when somebody, you know, hands us a half million dollar check to run their media, uh, like what will usually happen is we take 45 days to get to market. And we say, give us 45 days to start getting reasonable results. So that's actually three months in for us to, and we just ask, you know, on month six, we should have leading indicators to tell you whether or not this thing is going to work. Um, I'd say we do 97% of the time. Uh, very rarely is there an anom anomaly that makes it so that we can't sit down with the, with the board or the executive team and say, hey, you know, based on what we're seeing, we think that we're going to have a scalable marketing or an advertising environment for you ready. You know, you should start making money by month seven. Like, let's keep spending, if that makes sense. Makes total sense. Um, clearly, you're a, a expert in this field. And I want to give you the chance to talk about your company. Because from how I understand it, it's set up a little bit differently than your traditional agency uh, stand on the soapbox and tell us a little bit more. So the Model B was the uh, Wright Brothers' first, um, you know, commercial iteration of their biplane. So I love the story that they used to, and we kind of worked this out of the brand story by pop popular request. But I always tried to tried to work it in, and 
you know, my fellow executives and co-founders would be like, Ashton, nobody cares but you. But, uh, you know, we named it after the, the Wright brothers because the, it said that they used to like run to Kitty Hawk with like seven spare parts for each part of the plane, knowing they were going to crash seven or eight times that day. So they'd, they'd, test, they'd test it, crash, iterate, and try again. And so I like, I like that concept applied to advertising. Um, and I would say that the biggest difference between us and, you know, a lot of the other marketing shops out there is that I always tell people that you should either specialize in a single service line or, a, a, you know, a couple service lines or specialize in an industry. Like we're not specialized to an industry. Like we can do e-com, B2B, D2C, um, like anything really, uh, because we, we specialize in the one thing, which is paid advertising. And that naturally means that we also do the creative for the ad. So start to finish, we come up with a message for your, your audience. We build the media plan. We say you're going to use search, social display, like here are the breakdowns on the different platforms. And we, and while we're doing that on the media side, we do a beautiful two market creative strategy that just helps you put your best forward for who you are as a company in front of the eyes of your target audiences. We, we're doing this for ourselves now. And as, as I sit here, I mean, we're, we're driving a qualified lead for Model B. I think three have come in today using that approach because we're putting, um, you know, our best foot forward visually uh, on a messaging basis for the target audience. And I would say the reason that it's great to work with us is we care as much about the ROI and your ad spend as you do. Like we've had to let clients go with the, um, you know, the message that, hey, you're not spending enough based on our management fees in order for this to make sense for you moving forward and or the other dagger in advertising. Yeah, we've worked with some folks who were, um, you know, more confident in their product market fit than they really were, uh, than, it, than was actually the case. And so advertising for a company that doesn't have a great product market fit is probably not going to work at a positive ROI. It'll work, but you're going to be spending more money than you make from your new clients than they give you back uh, because you haven't put an offering together that actually... Uh, drives clear value. So, so I'd say the easiest, easiest way to make us different, you cut us a check for a million dollars, we're going to try to bring you three to $10 million back. And we also attribute everything as far up to the actual money event as we can. So for e-com companies, it's easy. We can see the register ding and we track it all the way to that ding. For B2B companies, we can see it all the way to where the lead comes in. And we've also recently started helping companies to track post lead. So for example, B2B companies, we can our dashboards to their next event, be it an MQL meeting set, pipeline generated. But, but at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is help companies grow. I mean, that's what I say in my profile. Like we are obsessed with top line revenue growth for our companies at a, at a huge ROI to them. And I always say that if advertising will work for you, we'll, we'll figure out how. Um, only downside is that you know, because the only downside of being me is that because it takes a pretty big team to do all this work, like, you know, I tell people that we're interesting to talk to when you're spending 50000 or more a month. But before then, you know, you kind of have to find, you know, less, uh, like lower, what's a good way to put it? Places where you can invest lower dollar values. And sometimes that's, you know, using freelancers to kind of help you figure out your ad environment, smaller agencies, more organic options like email outbound, 
again, content and SEO. Um, but yeah, we can, uh, we get people there. I mean, I think five of our clients are raising new funding rounds, like either from pre-seed to series A or series A to series B based on the work that we do for them. So it's a lot of fun when you can actually equip, um, you know, executives like CMOs and heads of marketing and heads of demand gen with the environments for them to, you know, look at their, whoever manages them and say, Hey, look at this beautiful thing we've made. Like we can now control our growth and have predictable revenue based on the investment we put into the marketing machine. That's awesome. That's a great story. Yeah. You you clearly enjoy it. I'm, uh, I'm going to rewind to something you said earlier in the podcast about you know, sharing your struggles as a founder and as an entrepreneur. And this question is a balloon or a softball for you. Have you found any organizations that help you share your struggles um, as a CEO, entrepreneur, founder? Oh, that's the big, that's not a softball, that's a beach ball. So let's talk about um, the entrepreneurs organization, Greg. Um the Entrepreneurs Organization is a uh, 16,000, we'll probably tip 17,000 this year if we haven't already, member organization that has uh, provided me uh, comfort, safety, and security uh, from the struggles of Founders Islands, which is what I call it. Um, you know, I joined the group last year um, and they, you know, in many volunteer organizations, my older brother says that, you know, if you show up on time for meetings, you'll very rapidly get a, a lot more opportunity. And so I am now the co-chair of the membership committee, so I can talk about EO all day. Um, but so, uh, man, where do I start, Greg? Where should I, what, what do you think the best, do, do you want an EO story? Do you want to, do you want to talk about what well, it's given to me personally? How, how you found EO? So Eric Hansen of Mechanic and Warner Moore of Gamma Force both told me I need to uh, go check out EO. Uh, so I started checking it out in the middle of the pandemic, had zero interest in having more Zoom calls. So I kind of kept it on the back burner. The moment things uh, started opening up, I took the advice of Eric and Warner and uh, reached out to the DC chapter um, and the rest is history. I, I think you were on one of my first, I, I think you were my first uh, call when you were the president of the EODC, correct? Um, and then you passed me over to Jamie who brought me in. So for EO, I found it through word of mouth. Um, and it was interesting. Eric didn't say much. Um, he just said, you got it. He just said, go join EO. And I was like, what is it? And he goes, uh, just, just go do it. And I was like, okay, um, no problem. We'll go check it it's out. very similar to my my EO story. Um, let's shift gears a little bit, Ashton. Talk to us about your background and where you grew up and how you got to where you are and what gets you excited other than advertising, spending, um, and EO. Talk to us about a little, little bit more about yourself. Well, one of the things that gets me so pumped about advertising, which is what always makes me like sad when I deal with folks, um, when I meet people who are like, Ashton, let's we're ready to invest. Let's go. And I'm like, oh yeah, like $600,000 a year is kind of our, where we want to start to bring you an ROI. But so one of the things I'm passionate about um, is uh, figuring out ways to help companies who don't have that like kind of budget yet. Um, so I'm always out and about um, you know, experimenting with different marketing um, tactics that are lower costs, trying different things. You know, I do a lot of outbound email myself and then share those tips and tricks through a couple of, 
you know, a couple of nonprofits, obviously EO is one of them. I volunteer over there, um, you know, helping to uh, grow membership is uh, where I, uh, where I'm volunteering this year, um, you know, looking for ways for the EODC chapter to actually figure out how to, how to grow, like how do we connect to more members at, at a budget that doesn't break the bank, understanding that we're a member funded nonprofit, right? Um, so I spend a lot of time um, experimenting there um, and then volunteering, um, you know, also in a local accelerator called Entrepreneurly, uh, where I coach a cohort of uh, greener entrepreneurs whose companies are under a million dollars. Obviously, EODC's membership uh, requirements are that the companies are a million dollars, not obviously. So EODC's membership requirements are a million dollars plus. So the accelerator is $250,000 plus. So I go in there and uh, I kind of help them and I'm going to tie this up, Greg, don't worry. Um, the reason I spend so much time uh, volunteering uh, places like Entrepreneurly um, and EO um, and then just being a part of all the benefits EO has to offer, which is amazing, is because my journey was hard. Um, I am I am not really smart enough to know when to give up. And so if I were a little smarter, I wouldn't be here on the podcast with you right now. I would have said in my early 20s, I'm not very good at this. And so I should go get a job. Um, but uh, one of the things I was homeschooled growing up and one of the things my parents taught me how to do incredibly well was, um, was learn um, and essentially... I don't know, improvise, keep testing, keep trying. Um, so I absorb information very quickly is what they kind of taught me how to do. So over time, as I kept getting more and more beat up um, by failing, and, and, and you know, my company's at, my first company actually did pretty well. It just didn't do pretty well for me. It did pretty well for, um, you know, a lot of the clients, they were happy. Um, some of the staff were happy. We worked them too hard because we didn't manage our finances well. So obviously, you know, when you're inefficient, um, you end up working people too hard. You churn your staff, you churn your clients, and you know you're back to square one. So you know one of the many reasons that you should have a great um, a great team helping you with your finances. But um, that's a long winded way to say that. You know, I got into this entrepreneurial world entirely on accident. I was homeschooled at every odd job here in DC. Um, I worked for another EO member, um, John Schneden, over at uh, Rock Rockland's Barbecue. I drove trucks for him when I was a kid. I cleaned carpets, bartended, did every odd job in the world until I accidentally got a job as an IT director at a local catering company that I parlayed into my first company. Um, because I learned quickly how to do that job. It's already pretty good with computers, but it was a great opportunity. So I got a lot better at them very quickly by reading a stack of books as high as my waist. Um, and what happened is other people started asking if I could do their computer stuff too. So that ended up being my first company, that catering company, not John's. It was, uh, it was another one that's no longer with us, um, three Citron Caterers. Uh, but they um, had me build out, you know, their entire email servers, their CRM environment, you know, on the CRM side, a lot of the stuff I still do today. Um, and other folks started asking for help. And that became company one. Um, and the rest is kind of history. Company two, five years later was a, like a digital marketing agency, some similar to what I'm doing today, because it did a lot of um, 
digital marketing stuff in my homeschooled years. So it's what I've always loved. Um, I've just been kind of doing it ever since. I had a job in the middle of there. I worked at a big agency to figure out how they added a zero to all my invoices. Um, <laughs> I came back out and started Model B with my partners six, seven years ago, and I've just been building ever since. So one of my favorite questions to ask my guests, looking back at the Ashton that was pioneering company number one, looking back at those moments, what advice would you give the younger Ashton? Well, the first thing I would do is I would uh, drag me into like uh, an accelerator and or EO if I was qualified. Uh, yeah, I was certain, had a huge ego, thought I knew everything. That's what happens when you're young. It actually, you know, it helped with getting clients, but it didn't help with like everything else. Um, you know, I wouldn't go back and um, join. I wouldn't go back and tell myself to buy Apple stocks. I'd go back and say, depending on where my revenue was, either join EO or join um, an EO accelerator uh, because uh, it can really help with a lot of the pain. For folks under 250, my advice is very simple. Um, don't think about revenue at all costs versus being a value-driven business. And so what that means is look for where you're driving value so that you get to send invoices or charge people for your products. Uh, a lot of Silicon Valley fund types say, you know, look for the problem and solve it. And so that's just another way you're solving a problem, you're driving value. So it's just another way to think of it. Um, and, you know, if you can start there and then put yourself with a group of people who have done it before and be willing to open your ears and listen. Remember I said at the beginning of this call, go ask five other companies like what they're doing that are similar to you to figure out what your marketing plan is. I didn't do that in my first company. I assumed I was better than everybody else. <laughs> so these days I'm older. I have more companies than I would have ever thought possible as a kid. Uh, more employees than I ever thought I'd be able to build and provide value to as well. Um, and I feel like I would have gotten here probably twice as fast if I checked my ego at the door when I started my first company and just tried to find communities of people similar to me who are seeking to help other people and drive value. Um, and there's a lot more granular advice. There are great books. Uh, actually, I will plug a book. Uh, the Right It by Alberto Saviola. Uh, that's the R-I-G-H-T space it. And it talks a lot about low-cost ways to figure out how to drive value through your product or your service before you even spend a bunch of money to go to market. But, you know, in a, in a sentence, I'd say, you know, check the ego and look for help. Like, there are people who will help you. I'll meet with anybody, anytime. And, like, some of these... People I talk to are like so kind and respectful of my time. They're like, I can't believe you took time to meet with me. And I'm like, A, I'm nothing in the grand scheme of things. So, so calm that down. And B, of course, I'll help. And I bet that if you ask somebody else for help, you're going to be amazed at what they say too. And there, you know, there's always a bad apple and not saying they're bad. If you're too busy, that's okay. Like you always get that person who's like too busy or can't make the time. And that's okay because you'll find more people who will make the time, in my opinion, than people who won't. So now that you've opened that door, how do people get in touch with you? Oh, that's very easy. Um, so 
I am Ashton Moore on every platform, LinkedIn, Instagram. Uh, what else do I have? I muted Facebook, so that's not a great place. Sorry, Zuckerberg. Of an email, my email is my first uh, last name at Gmail. Um, so easy to get in touch with, and you know, shoot me a note on LinkedIn or slide into my uh, DMs on Instagram or send me an email, and I'll send you a calendar link and we'll talk. Um, I, I love talking to you know people who are thinking about starting a company. I love talking about people who have started a company and want to hear ways that you know I've messed up in the past. So in their similar scenarios, because I've probably uh, probably done the wrong thing in a similar situation. And then, of course, you know, if you're uh, if you're spending a million dollars or so a year in, in advertising and you want us to uh, get you more results, um, always love those meetings too. Come and <laughs> sign up, and we'll make you some money. Very well said. And all your links and your reference to the book and other things that you've mentioned across the show, we'll put in the show notes. So. If you're listening to this or watching it on YouTube, just scroll down and you'll see the details. Ashton, what a pleasure to have you on our show. Uh, your insights were brilliant. Um, you got me fired up for the day. So thanks for your time. It is always awesome to spend any time with you, my man. So um, anytime you want me, I'm here. I really appreciate you having me. And, uh, you know, Kudos to anybody who made it this far. I appreciate you and I look forward to meeting you at some point. Well said. Have a great afternoon. And that's a wrap, my friends. Thank you for spending your time with me. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at impactfulleadershipshow.com. One last food for thought. Walk on with hope in your heart and you'll never walk alone.